0: Good morning to everyone. In the, the sermon notes, that's the inside of your, your bulletin, your worship guide, you'll see uh, the title for today's sermon, Is God Angry? And the text, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Let me give you the answer to the question right up front. It's yes. Is God angry? Uh, yes, he is. And uh, I've quoted from John Murray. A definition, I think a very good definition of God's anger, God's wrath. It is the holy revulsion of his being against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. That requires some explanation. And we are going to explain it by answering three questions. The first is this, what exactly is God's anger? Or to use the term Paul uses in Romans 1.18, What exactly do we mean by God's wrath? That's question number one. Question number two is this, uh, how do we see it? Or again, to use the language of the Apostle Paul, how is God's wrath revealed from heaven? And the third question is this, is why? Why is God's wrath revealed from heaven? So three questions, what, how, why? But that is our third order of business. There are three things I want to do today. That is the third. The first thing I want to do is start big and step back, step out, step up, and provide us with an overview of the book of Romans in its entirety. We are finished with the introduction, chapter 1, first 17 verses. And so now is the time for us just to pause and to look at the book as a whole, so that we can enter into Paul's thought flow from beginning to end. That's the first thing I want to do. Second thing I want to do is narrow our focus a little bit and consider the first section. You're going to see in a moment there are five sections in this book. I want us to look at the first section and get a feel for it as we make our way through it in detail over the next couple of months. So have you got that, three orders of business. Number one, big we're going to look at the book in its entirety. I'm not going to take that long on it. Number two, we're going to narrow our focus a little bit to the first section. I'll identify it in just a moment. Don't worry. You haven't missed anything. And then we'll narrow our focus even further to Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and wrestle with that question, is God angry? And that's our agenda for today. Ricky Braswell, he hasn't volunteered. He has to do it because he's uh, clicking this morning. He's going to bring up a slide for us. There it is. Here is your overview of the book of Romans, an outline which I'm going to follow. It's based on those key verses in chapter 1, those verses with which Paul winds up his introduction. He declares what? We're memorizing them. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of, of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? For in it, what? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Not his words, as it is written. He is quoting from the Old Testament. He is quoting from our perspective a very obscure passage of Scripture, in a very obscure book, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And so he latches onto that verse from the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, the righteous shall live by faith. And this becomes, for all you essay writers, this becomes his thesis statement. That's it. This is his thesis statement for the entire book. And all he does from here, right through to the end, is unpack the meaning the significance of that text out of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And so what we have in the book of Romans is really Paul's exposition of that single statement, the righteous shall live by faith. The statement raises five questions, or we might say five issues, big, huge, weighty issues. Paul knows, Paul knows the statement raises these issues. And so he addresses them one by one. He lines them up like ducks in a row. And he addresses them one by one in this book. And they lead naturally to five sections. The righteous shall live by faith. The first question that raises is this. Why? Why does it have to be by faith? Why can't I just please God with the life I'm living? Why can't I just do my best in order to earn God's favor? Paul answers that question in the very first section, which we're going to entitle, Condemnation. And it begins, you see it right there, chapter 1, verse 18, goes all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. And so in this first section, all he is doing, very simple, is answering the question as to why The righteous must live by faith. Why there is no other alternative. And the answer simply put, he discloses it in verse 18 and simply unpacks it. The answer is simply this. It is because there is such a thing as the wrath of God. (laughs) That's why the righteous must live by faith. Simply because there is such a thing as the wrath of God. And he explains that in this first section. The second question that statement raises is this. What do you mean? The righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? I'm supposed to live. This is a righteousness that, reveal, that, that is a revelation of God. And so this gospel, this good news reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals, it declares that God imputes. He credits. He reckons. He counts. The righteousness of Christ to me whereby I am saved, I am justified in God's sight through faith. Unpack that for me, Paul. What exactly does that look like? What exactly does that mean? He explains, beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, and he goes all the way through to the end of chapter 5, verse 21, and we're going to call that section justification. That section brings us to the climax of the book, in my opinion, and many would agree with me. The climax of the book begins in chapter 5 verse 12 through to verse 21 where Paul describes two men, Adam and Christ, two federal heads. And his point is this, you are either in Adam under that old covenant of works or you are in Christ under the covenant of Grace. That becomes the climax. Everything he says is moving up to that climax in chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. And then everything he says afterwards kind of descends the other side of the mountain from that pivotal passage. The third question, that statement, Habakkuk 2.4, The righteous shall live by faith. The third question it raises is this. Well, that sounds great. All I have to do, do, to do is believe. Now I can live, as I like to say, however I jolly well please. I believe. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was six years old. And now I can just do whatever I want. I've taken out the fire insurance policy. And uh, he's my savior, not necessarily my Lord, but we won't worry about that. I might lose out on a reward or two in heaven, but I'm not that concerned. I'm saved. I'm good. It's all good. And so Paul tackles that question beginning in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 8. Three chapters, 6, 7, and 8. And he shows that the individual who thinks like that is quite confused. That in actual fact, by virtue of our union with Christ, when we're made one with the Lord Jesus, we become partakers of two blessings. Blessing number one is justification, which deals with the penalty of our sin. Blessing number two is? sanctification, which deals with the power of our sin. The two are distinct, but they are inseparable. You cannot have one without the other. Very fascinating, this section. There's tons in there. You think, I've already referred to it at the end of chapter 5, that that climax in the book, verse 12 through 21, he speaks of two men. In chapter 6, he is going to speak of two masters. In chapter 7, he's going to describe two marriages. And in chapter 8, he's going to speak of two minds. So, my friends, my brothers and sisters, you get, you get your mind around that. Two men, two masters, two marriages, two minds. And you'll be very clear on the relationship between justification and sanctification. There's a fourth question. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, Paul, that's all well said and done. Sounds good, but when I look around... Not too many Jews are believing that. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of Jews, the bulk of the Jews, have rejected what you've said outright. Here's my problem. Didn't God enter into a covenant with the Jews? Didn't God make a bunch of promises to the Jews, to Israel? And so the fact that most of the Israelites, most of the Jews reject your gospel, well, doesn't that mean somehow that God is actually unfaithful? He's been untrue unfaithful to the promises he made to Abraham, the nation of Israel, way back in the Old Testament. Paul's going to answer that question. He's going to answer it in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And it will bring us into the realm of that great truth, election. And he's going to demonstrate that we are saved for one reason, one reason alone. It is God's sovereign grace that, yes, we believe in a point of time. Yes, the Son of God redeemed us, paying the penalty for our sin at a point of time. But you trace these events back to their first cause. And we find God's sovereign grace in all eternity. It does not depend upon the man who wills or runs. But it depends upon God, His sovereign grace. That's where we're going to go in that third, fourth section, election. And then the fifth and final section, the question is this. Well, what should this look like in my life? What kind of difference should this make? I get all those big words. I can't spell them, but I understand them. Condemnation, justification, sanctification, election. I get all of the doctrine. All the truth is now in my mind. What will this look like in my life? And so chapter 12, verse 1, the very first word is, therefore. In other words, Paul is saying, if you have understood everything I have said to this point, therefore, this is how you are going to? live and he demonstrates that love becomes the governing principle in the life of the individual the righteous who are living by faith you got all that that's where we're going to be for the next two years i hope you've got it so come november or come february that bleary cold blustery day as we're somewhere in chapter 5, 6, 7, or 8, and you're looking around wondering, where have we been? Where are we going? You can step back, and you can recall this. Don't worry, I'll remind you of it. You can be sure of that. A time or two between now and February. But you can see, the, you, you now have a bird's eye view of what exactly Paul is trying to accomplish. He's given his introduction, he's established his thesis statement, and all he is doing is unpacking it. Wrestling with those five questions, those five issues, and those are the sections we're going to enter into and look at how Paul answers, addresses each of those issues in detail. That's order of business number one. Check it off. We're done. My friend Ricky is going to bring up another slide now. There it is. What we're going to do, order of business number two, is enter into the first section. What is it called? Condemnation. Where does it begin? Chapter 1, verse 18 goes all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I beg you to do for the next couple of months, probably three months. I don't know. We'll see. As we make our way through these chapters, I want you to imagine, use your sanctified imagination, that we are standing in a courtroom. We've entered a courtroom. As in any courtroom, this courtroom has a judge. God, the Almighty, the Lord, Sovereign of the Universe. All right? In this courtroom, there stands the accused. Humanity. The accused. But humanity, as distinguished into two groups. This is a distinction that is made way back in Genesis chapters 11 and 12. The distinction between Jews, right? The descendants of Jacob, and Gentiles. Together they constitute all of humanity, and together as far as as Paul is concerned, they are, humanity is, the accused in this courtroom. There are two witnesses. And so Paul, he's going to be the prosecuting attorney. He's going to present a case against the accused, humanity, Gentiles and Jews. In order to do so, he is going to call forth two witnesses. He's going to ask two witnesses to take the witness stand, and we're going to hear their testimony. The first witness is general revelation. Fancy expression simply refers to what? Creation. That's all we mean by that. General revelation. What God has revealed about himself generally in the created universe, right? The created order. The second witness, special revelation. Not creation, but scripture, the oracles of God. And so he's going to call on these two witnesses. We're going to hear from the defense attorney. They've actually got an, The defense actually has an attorney team consisting of two well-known, famous, well-paid lawyers, and they're going to stand up at different times and say, I object. And so the attorney, Mr. Nice, is going to stand up at one point and say, I have an objection. And then attorney, Mr. Religious, is going to stand up at another point and say, I have an objection. And so we're in this courtroom. Can you picture it? Now, how exactly is this trial going to play out? Third and final slide, Ricky, please. Here you have it. In verse 18, Paul, the prosecuting attorney, is going to bring an accusation. The accusation, yes, is right there in verse 18. I'm thinking primarily of the second half of the verse where Paul says that by their unrighteousness, he's speaking of humanity, Jews and Gentiles, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. That's the accusation. And so Paul, the court begins, Paul stands up and he says, here's the accusation I'm bringing against the accused. Here it is, it's very simple. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Meaning what? That humanity's problem is not intellectual. It's Not intellectual. Humanity's problem is? Moral humanity's problem is this. please understand this friend, especially when dealing with your atheist friends. there's really no such thing as an atheist. There really isn't. according to what Paul's going to say in these chapters, the issue, when it comes to God, the issue when it comes to truth is not intellectual. The issue is moral. Man willfully, consciously, stubbornly, suppresses what he knows to be true. Why? In his unrighteousness. That is the accusation he's bringing. Now he needs to prove it. That's a bold claim. And so what he does is he provides testimony. And in this testimony, he calls his first witness. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 32. We already know who this first witness is. It is Mr. General Revelation. It is Mr. Creation. And he's going to call this first witness and he's going to say, Look, is this true? Is this true that they have suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness? And I'm thinking in particular of the Gentiles. And general revelation is going to give witness, is going to give testimony, say, yes, it is true, because what is known about God has been clearly evident ever since the beginning of creation, so that man is without excuse. And professing to be wise, man has actually become a fool, a fool. That is going to be his testimony. He is going to confirm that the accusation is indeed true, that the Gentiles suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. But there's going to be an objection. The defense attorney, the first defense attorney, attorney Mr. Nice, is going to stand up and say, hold on a second, I object. I'm a nice guy. I'm a pretty good person. I've compared myself with what I read in the newspaper. I've compared myself with neighbors. I've compared myself with what I see going on in the world. Hey, come on. When I look around, I'm pretty nice. I'm pretty good. And Paul is going to respond to that objection in the first 16 verses of chapter 2. And basically what he's going to say is this. Look, you might be semi-delusional, but you are not good. You are definitely confused. You most certainly are not nice. And understand this. God is going to judge us according to the secrets of our hearts. And he silences that first objection. He's finished with creation, general revelation, his first witness. He calls a second witness. Chapter 2, verse 17 through to verse 29, special revelation, Scripture. And now he has in view the Jews, not the Gentiles, but the Jews, those who possessed the Old Testament Scriptures. And he calls Scripture itself to give witness, to bear testimony to the fact that the accusation is true. That even the Jews who possessed the oracles of God suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. They suppressed it to such an extent, Paul is going to say, Scripture is going to argue, that the Gentile, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. And so what good has the word of God done them? What good have the oracles of God done them? What good has special revelation done them? Paul's going to demonstrate There's not made any difference at all. They are absolutely no difference from the Gentiles. The Gentiles suppress the truth in rejecting general revelation. The Jews themselves have suppressed what they know to be true through their unrighteousness, the Scriptures themselves, but an objection. First eight verses of chapter 3, the second attorney is going to stand up and say, whoa, 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 I'm religious. I'm a Jew. I'm not a Gentile dog. I'm not like them. I don't do what they've done. I'm one of the privileged ones. I'm under a covenant, aren't I? Abraham is my father. Look at all the things I've got. I mean, there's got to be some difference between us and them uh, simply by virtue of the fact that we are Jews. I'm religious. And Paul is going to silence that objection in the first eight verses of chapter 3. And so two witnesses, two objections. All constituting the testimony confirming the accusation way back in verse 18. Again, the accusation. They, all humanity, Gentiles, Jews, suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Courtroom grows silent at the end of verse 8. And then the judge himself stands up. Verses 9 through 18. And the judge himself reads, or if you like, declares the verdict. It's summarized in one statement right there in verse 9. We charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, we charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, all humanity, they are under sin. That is the verdict. Having heard the testimony, Having heard the accusation, heard from creation, heard from Scripture, general revelation, special revelation, having heard the objection silenced, the judge now speaks. Look, all of you, all humanity, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, all are under sin. From verse 10 through verse 18, there's a series of citations going back to the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and they're all in the present tense as it is written. The voice of God, if you like, comes from the past, through the centuries to the present, and declares what? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, not even one. All of them, all humanity has turned aside. Together they have become useless, worthless. And he sums it all up in verse 18, declaring that there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the verdict. And then the sentence is passed. Verses 19 through 20, summed up in verses 18 and 19, summed up in this word, this expression. The whole world is held accountable to God. The whole world. All of humanity, Jew, Gentile, makes no difference. They've all suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. The whole world is accountable to God. Which brings us back where? To the opening statement in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Do you get it? That's the first section. You don't need me to say this. You can take those slides away, Ricky. Thank you very much. You don't need me to say this, but I'm going to say it uh, anyway. Uh, we're in for a ride. These are dark, dark chapters. These are I, I'm dreading next week's chapter. You read ahead and you'll see why I'm dreading it. Um, th- th- Paul, as he's proving his point, he's proving why, he's proving why. Habakkuk chapter two verse four is, is an absolute necessity. There's only one hope. There's only one hope. That hope is the grace of God. The righteous shall, they must, live by faith. And, and he knows you've got to get this. Because if you don't get this, you won't get the gospel. It's why the gospel weighs so weightless on so many people. It's because they've never really perceived their need for it. They've never gone as deep as Paul takes us in these chapters where he forces us, he holds our head and holds our eyes open and places the mirror in front of us, and he forces us to look at the inner cavern recesses of our souls. And he forces us to reckon with who we really are before a holy God. It is discouraging. Stick it out, because the good news is coming, but not till chapter 3, verse 21. Oh, he, he, he's going to take us... He's going to take us way down into the depths. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, when we don't think we can take any more and we think we're going under and can barely breathe, He's going to pull us back up again into the realm of the gospel and what it means to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let me add another comment. And you probably don't need me to say this, but, well, maybe some of you do. I better say it anyway. Here it is. Every error, I do mean every, not just some. Every error concerning the gospel can be traced to a misunderstanding of these three chapters. It's true. Every error concerning the gospel. And we're, we're, we're surrounded by a plethora of false gospels in our day, aren't we? Every false gospel can trace itself back to a misunderstanding of these three chapters. Every false gospel arises... For one reason, one reason alone, a deficient or defective view of sin. Oh, by God's grace, you will not have a deficient nor defective view of your sin, my sin, by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 20, if I have anything to say with it. Because we're going to get stuck in here. And we're going to consider what Paul says again as he brings that great accusation against humanity. All humanity makes no difference. That they have suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. And he proves it. Two witnesses. The first, creation itself. General revelation. The second, scripture itself. Special revelation. And he's going to prove. He's going to demonstrate. We're going to hear it from the word of God itself. That all are under sin. And the sentence is. Condemnation. The wrath of God. Now that brings us to our third order of business. It brings us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18. And Paul's opening statement there. For, four, here's why Habakkuk 2, verse 4 is absolutely necessary. Here's why that great statement concerning the, the gospel, the righteous shall live by faith. Here's, here's why this is non-negotiable. It can't be any other way, folks. Here's why you can't contribute one iota to it. Here's why it doesn't make any difference what you do, say, or think. Here's why you bring nothing to the table, You contribute nothing to salvation. Here is why it must be all of grace and we live by faith. For, because, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They deny what they know to be true. Three questions as promised. Question number one. What is the wrath of God? Now, we do need to slow down, spend at least a couple of minutes here, because that is a troubling question, and it is a controversial question. The wrath of God. Is God angry? I want to begin by quoting from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I quote this statement because it is an accurate Faithful. It's Article 2, I believe, of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is a faithful, accurate testimony of Scripture. The statement is simply this. Strike you as odd, but you'll understand why this is a necessary starting point. God is without body, parts, or passions. It's true. God is without body, parts, or passions. What has this got to do with the wrath of God? Work through it with me. Extremely important. Extremely important. God is without body. Meaning what? I don't know how else to reword it. He is without body. He does not have a physical nature. He is not like you and me in that regard. We pick up our Bibles and we read, for example, of the eye of the Lord. It does not mean literally he has an eye or two eyes, it is speaking figuratively of what? His wisdom. That he sees all things. He beholds all things. Everything is an open book before him. Past, present, future. We read in the scripture, for example, of the arm of God. doesn't mean he literally has a left arm, right arm, a physical body. No. It's figurative. It speaks of what? His power. His sovereignty. His might. The fact that he is unrivaled in strength. God is without body. Clear enough. He is spirit. I won't do it, but I could. There are about a dozen kids I could get come up here right now. And if I were to say to them, what is the fourth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? They would say it, and they would say it flawlessly. The fourth question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is God? And then they would answer. God is a spirit, right? Infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being. That is in his very essence. And then it's followed by six attributes. And if you want to know the attributes, you better ask one of the kids afterwards because I can't remember. Something about power, wisdom, justice. And there are six of them. Truth, that he is unchangeable in these attributes. That what is God? In the first instance, he is a spirit. He does not have a body. Pure spirit. And he's a spirit that is infinite, without any spatial boundaries. He's a spirit that is eternal, without any temporal boundaries. And he is a spirit that is unchangeable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is without body. The Westminster Confession of Faith builds on that. It says that God is also without parts. Without parts. What's that about? Well, think of yourself. Think of me. I have two main parts, body, soul. We've already established the fact that God doesn't have a body. But I have body and soul. And so my body is one part of me. My body has parts. I have fingers, I have an arm, I have eyes, I have hair, I have a nose. These are parts. And all of these parts have qualities, right? Some of us have lots of hair, don't have so much hair. Some of us are tall, we're not so tall. Some of us have long fingers, some of us stubby fingers. Some have blue eyes, hazel eyes, brown eyes, black eyes, long noses, short noses. And so we have parts. Our first part is a body. And then our body is made up of parts and members and all of these parts and members and skin and internal organs, all this stuff, they bear qualities. And we also have a soul and our soul has parts, understanding, faculty of understanding, will, that is the power to choose, affections, memory, conscience. And all of these parts also have qualities, wisdom or foolishness when it comes to the understanding, memory, good or bad sound or not so sound. And so all of these things bear qualities. And so when I say I am a human and what it means to be human, here's the reality. I can be human and yet be missing a hand. I can be human and yet my memory can go. I can be human, yet I can be foolish. I can be human, yet I can be missing a kidney. So you see, all of these parts do not constitute what it means to be human. It is the collective Whole, we are made up of parts. Are you getting that? God is without parts. There is no subdivision within God. This is extremely important because when we say God is wise, the statement is not entirely accurate. God is wise, it, it is a description. The truth of the reality is this, God is wisdom. We say God is powerful, not entirely accurate. That's not the way to say it. It doesn't get really to the fullness of the truth. The truth is this. God is power. He doesn't have parts. His essence is inseparable from his attributes. His attributes are inseparable from his essence. God is loving. God is love. Uh, God is angry. No. God is anger. We cannot separate, we cannot divorce who, what God is from His essence. He is pure spirit. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is unchangeable. He is without body and He is without parts. And the Westminster Confession of Faith adds, thirdly, that He is without passions. What does that mean? He is without passions. It means at least two things, the following. This is all we have time to focus on. And it will help us when we, when we, when we think of ourselves and what it means to have emotions, what it means to have passions, and, and see how different God is from us. And so think firstly as follows. Our emotions are experiences. We'd all agree with that, I hope. Our emotions are experiences. That is, they are something we experience in a defined start, end, moment in time. God's emotions are not experiences. God's emotions, they are not passions. They do not have beginning, nor do they have end. They are unchanging because they are who He is. Second thing I want you to get is this. Our emotions are caused by external factors. Something sets us off, right? Our emotions, joy or delight, even love, anger, all of these emotions we experience in defined periods of time, they are stirred, provoked, caused by something outside of ourselves. That is not the case with God. His emotions are not Reactions. He is spirit. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being. He is wrath. He is love. He is mercy. He is goodness. He is faithfulness. These are not passions. Things confined to specific moments of time, nor things caused by something external to God himself. Let me illustrate this from nature, and I hope this helps rather than confuses. I got up yesterday morning, as we all did, went outside on the porch, and as I was sitting there, the sun was rising. Anybody take issue with that? No. Sun was rising. Other side of the house, because I'm facing west. I went out again at around one in the afternoon. The sun was standing overhead. Anybody have a problem with that statement? No, it makes perfect sense. You know exactly what I'm saying. I went out again at eight o'clock in the evening where we live. That little subdivision is known as Sunset Park for a good reason. The sunsets are beautiful. The sun was setting. So in the morning, the sun was rising. In the afternoon, the sun was standing overhead. In the evening, the sun was setting. Guess what? None of those statements are true. The sun wasn't doing anything. Who was moving? Me. The earth spinning on its axis. The sun is fixed. The sun doesn't move. Those expressions, the sun is rising, the sun is standing, the sun is setting, they describe my experience of the sun. But they say nothing about the sun. Do you understand that? God's wrath. God's love. God is angry. God is loving. God regrets. God relents. God is compassionate. All these expressions that we have concerning the emotions of God in Scripture, please understand, they are describing our experience of a God who is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, without body, without parts, without passions. Now do you understand how important this is for the wrath of God? And this is why so many people struggle with the wrath of God. Why? Because we think of our wrath. We think of our anger. Something sets us off and we lose control. Guess what? That has nothing to do with God's wrath. We cannot describe his wrath by ours. Ours which is provoked by our own selfishness at times. Our own impatience. Misunderstanding. Confusion. Provoked by so many times. And it burns hot. And it burns fast. And it burns furious. It starts here. And it ends here. Until something else provokes it. That has nothing to do with God. When we speak of his wrath. And I hope now John Murray's definition is making some sense. All we are speaking of is what John Murray describes there. The holy revulsion, notice his language so important. the holy revulsion of God's being, it is who he is against that which is the contradiction of his holiness. Now the second question it leads to is this out of Romans 1:18, How is this wrath of God revealed from heaven? That's what Paul says. Now, notice a couple of interesting things. The Greek Greek term there, revealed, is the the word we get apocalypse from. And so the book of apocalypse, that is the book of Revelation. You're all familiar with that word. So something that is made evident, right? Something that, that all of a sudden we see. And so the wrath of God is revealed. In other words, Paul is saying that the wrath of God is made visible. Very important, the verb is not in the past tense. It's not talking about something that happened in the past, like Noah's Ark or something like that, or Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not in the future tense. He's not speaking to the final judgment. It's in the present tense. The wrath of God is, right now, if we care to look, revealed from heaven. How? Calamities and disasters? Quite possible. I wouldn't want to enter into the inner workings of God's secret will and secret providence. Quite possible. Wars and civil strife? Quite possible. Death? Do you think? Certainly. Death, the consequence of the fall. Every physical death, a reminder of God's wrath. Every death, a reminder that God's wrath is revealed from heaven. But it's not actually the road Paul is going down. In the rest of this section, he is going to argue, he is going to demonstrate that this wrath is revealed. It is revealed right now, and please get this and make no mistake. It is revealed right now, how? In sin. That's what he's going to say. That God's wrath against sin is revealed in sin. That God's wrath against ungodliness, unrighteousness. That is just his holy disposition, who he is, his being in his infinite self. That... It has an object. He loves goodness. He loves his holiness. Therefore, anything that is opposed to his holiness, his goodness, is by his nature, by definition, the object of his wrath. That wrath is revealed now. How? In sin. In that God punishes sin with greater sin. And that's a lead-in. That is an introduction for for what he is going to begin to argue in verse nineteen, all the way down through verse thirty-two. Next Sunday. Third question is this, staying with our text. Why is the wrath of God revealed from heaven? Paul uses two expressions. I've referred to them already. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Here they are. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is ungodliness? I think we can sum it up as sin against the first table of the law. It is all sin is Godward in nature, some sins specifically so. By definition, the first table of the law, you think of the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods beside me. And so God's wrath is revealed against ungodliness. His wrath is revealed against all violations of the first table of the law. His wrath is also revealed against unrighteousness the second table of the law which is primarily concerned with our neighbor summed up i believe in the 10th commandment you shall not covet and so you have these commandments you shall love the lord you 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 shall have no other gods before me summed up by the lord jesus himself you shall love god with all your heart soul mind and strength You have that 10th commandment, you shall not covet, summed up by the Lord Jesus himself as what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here we have the entire law, the entire Decalogue. And here we have the summation of ungodliness, unrighteousness. It is the violation of what God himself has deemed to be good and has revealed and declared to be so in his word, that is, in his law. People stumble here. Oh, people object to this and have all sorts of issues with this. I I think when we... we clear through the mess, and, and we get down to the crux of the matter, we discover that for, for, for many people in, in their thinking, and dare I say, forgive me if I find this offensive, in their confused thinking, they, they think that, that divine wrath is incompatible with divine love. You ever heard that? I hear it lots. Divine wrath incompatible with divine love. Well, if God is love, well, he can't be wrath. These are mutually exclusive. If God is love and compassion and mercy and, and, and gracious... Well, then he can't be angry. These two nullify one another. It's impossible that God be the same thing at the same time. As a matter of fact, my friend, the opposite is true. It is impossible for God not to be the same thing at the same time. Why? Because both wrath and love are expressions of goodness. Let me try to explain that. Let me try to explain that in terms of what we have heard this past week. Uh, Boko Haram, is that how you say it? Boko Haram, nobody here knows, so I don't know either, but Boko Haram, Nigeria. You heard about that in the news? All those schoolgirls kidnapped. How's that going to end, folks? Boko Haram. Does that make you angry? You hear about that? If it doesn't make you angry, you are <laughs> incapable of love. It burns me up. Oh, it makes me angry. Why? Because I love goodness. There is the violation of goodness. That violation of goodness by nature, therefore, becomes the object of my wrath. It is no different with God. Love and wrath are the dual expression of goodness. You cannot have one without the other. God loves goodness. Oh, and he loves his goodness. And he has revealed his goodness in his law. Man has willfully, consciously disobeyed his law and is guilty, therefore, of ungodliness and unrighteousness. Guess what? Those are violations of his goodness. You are messing with his goodness. You are corrupting, destroying, adulterating his goodness. Guess what? No surprise here. That ungodliness and unrighteousness by virtue of, God, of who God is simply in his being is the object now of his Wrath. That should not surprise anyone. Hear these words. The most surprising thing. The most surprising thing is not that God is angry. The most surprising thing is that God is forgiving. That's the truth. The most surprising thing is not that God is angry. It's a no-brainer. The most amazing, startling, stupendous thing is that this angry God is forgiving. The most surprising thing in the world is not the wrath of God. The most surprising thing in the world is that in Christ Jesus, I don't get what I deserve. That is the most amazing, surprising thing in the world. We sang it moments ago, that Getty song. I penned it down quickly. I hope I've got it right. Here it is. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. No change in God. He is who he was. He will continue to be who he is. He is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. What has changed? We have. We are no longer in Adam. We, as Christians, those of us who have repented of our sin and professed faith in the Lord Jesus, we are now in Christ. And Christ has absorbed the wrath of God for us, whereby now in Christ we are the object of God's love. Hear these words. It is the darkness of night that makes the dawn so uplifting. It is the torment of pain that makes the relief so comforting. It is the cold of winter that makes the spring so encouraging. And my friends, it is the wrath of God that makes the love of God so overwhelming. Our Father, we do pray that you would impress that upon our minds and hearts this day. We have probed into great mysteries. We have entered into the realm of glory. And we pray that you would grant us understanding in accordance with your word and by your spirit that you would bring comfort this day where it is required, that you would bring conviction where it is needed, that you would pray, bring strength where it is so desperately wanted. We pray that through your word you might meet and fulfill each and every need that is present here this day. And we ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom. We ask it for your glory. And we ask it of you in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.